Coming to you from a deserted island in the Pacific. It's the Little Podcast of Horrors with James, Christina, and Chris. Hello there, my pretties. Am I alone? (laughs) I'm here. It was so quiet. Comes Christina. (laughs) What's up, everybody? Welcome to Little Podcast of Horrors. Hail Ashtar, everybody. Whoa. Oh, whoa. Just starting like that, huh? Wow, you just jumped the up. gun. Wow, yeah. You... <laughs> it's it's anarchy, man. It's anarchy it's a- today. It's it's anarchy at the little podcast of horrors. That's right. Well, as You're always disrupted the balance. Yeah, you have. I don't even know what to say next. I'm done. I'm oh done. no, it's his story. <laughs> as what always, you drinking? I'm Chris... oh I'm oh. <laughs> we should coordinate I'm... the show, huh? <laughs> I know, right? I'm Chris, and I'm not. Losers. I'm Chris, and I'm actually not drinking anything. I'm Christina, and I'm drinking water. <laughs> I'm James, and I'm I'm drinking a variation of a of another favorite of mine. So this uh, Epic Brewing does this beer called the Big Bad Baptist, oh. and uh, it's one of my favorites. But they've started doing a variety of them. And so the one I'm currently drinking is the Big Bad Baptist S'mores. So it's an apparel stout aged in whiskey barrels with basically cocoa and uh, it's s'mores. It's a s'mores beer. It's it's a beer that's just straight up s'mores. (laughs) And it's happy. Is it thick and Yeah, it's a stout. I love how it, like me and Christine, it was like, I'm not drinking anything. I'm drinking water. Long behold, I, James Panetti, two hours later, and that's what I'm drinking. <laughs> it's like, I'm just oh, drinking. Just al- like, I'm drinking a beer. No, you could have been like, I'm drinking alcoholic s'mores. You're, you're Basically, that's what you're drinking. You're drinking alcoholic liquid s'more. Yes. Yes. And actually, it sounds delicious. It sounds like it'd be thick and syrupy. Yeah. Like you'd be going, basically trying to get it off your mouth. <laughs> but you don't want to get it off your mouth. You want it to stay. This it is getting like sores. I'm getting so uncomfortable. It's thick. <laughs> it's thick and it's in and around my mouth. I don't want it off my mouth. Dripping. Mm. Anyway. This is not a show for kids. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, unless you shit. want your kids really messed up. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you want years of future therapy for your children, well, do we have the podcast for you? <laughs> so we don't have to behave anymore now that we don't have a guest on. That's all right. Uh, yeah, out comes the drinks, and here we go. Bad to the bone. Well, drinks isn't James. He's the only one. So I guess James is just like, I'm drinking uh, no more. I don't have to play it so- straight lace. I never loved your mother. Oh, oh my mm. gosh. What? <sighs> well, I've got the story today, kids. You do? It's me. Yippee! It's all me. <laughs> Tell us what the do you story. Have for us? Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start it off in true storytelling fashion 
Once upon a time. No, no, that's that's not. Mm-mm. Fifteen-year-old Betty Clink was at home in St. Petersburg, Florida, listening to the family radio. The time was around 3 p.m. And she was listening to the shortwave. See, her father had erected a 60-foot wire antenna across the backyard. This setup, I know, right? This setup allowed them to pick up stations all over the world. As Betty fiddled with the dials, searching for a catchy tune, she hears something. Wait, 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 wait. You messed it up. I had a good vibe. All you got to do is, like, erect a fancy antenna in your backyard, and you get to Um, listen to, like, the planet's radio stations? Well, this was a 60-foot wire antenna across the whole backyard. I want to listen to all the world's... I mean, we have the internet, so I guess you can do that, but still... I, mean, I want yeah, to do it with the... a 60-foot antenna. That'd be well, awesome. Go make yourself a 60-foot antenna. Anyway, gosh. So, as I was saying, as Betty fiddled with the dial, searching for a catchy tune, she hears something she does not expect. It's a woman's voice, not singing, not reporting. The voice is tense and simply states her name. This is Amelia Earhart. This no way. Is a... This is Amelia the date is July 1937, July 5th. And unbeknownst to Betty, there's a massive search on to find Amelia Earhart, who went missing several days earlier. So yes, we're going to be talking about the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. And the kid's like, oh man, this is the greatest radio drama ever. <laughs> no, right? So just to give a little backstory to anybody who may somehow not know who Amelia Earhart was. She flew Amelia. a plane. She didn't come back. The end. That, wow. There's a little bit more <laughs> to it, okay? So Earhart was an early 20th century aviator, um, having been the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, as well as achieving many other aviation records. Um, she actually flew, uh, she was one of the first ladies who flew across the United States from California to New York. Um, and she was and she was the only the 16th woman in the entire United States to be even issued a pilot's license in 1923. Oh, man. Could you imagine nice. how uncomfortable that first that first like coast to coast flight could have been? Because like I, I am because I'm a nerd, I've been watching a lot of like aviation videos and just like people in modern day, you know, personal two seater planes flying over the ocean looks like it would be misery and that, that's today in 2024 but to imagine Hold like in an airplane that early a model just clunking along flying coast to coast oh. that that, hold, that that lady she she had some, oh hold some on gumption. to that thought hold on to that thought hold on to that so over her many years she would prove to be a capable pilot she was able to think under pressure and she was really passionate just about achieving her aviator goals I mean, she was not she was not an amateur. She was a professional pilot. She knew what she was doing. Case in point, at one point, she was literally coming into Scotland and her wings were freezing up and she was like barely making it. And but she kept it cool and calm and landed the plane. So but anyway, after many successes, what would be her final flight? She announced in June of 1937 
that she would be circumnavigating the globe along the equator. And her flight would begin and end in California. And it was expected to take around 40 plus days to complete. The total distance was a whopping 30,000 miles. Whoa. So you were talking about, you know, like, I think the longest flight I ever had was to California. And that was like, I think six hours I was in a plane. This is 40 plus days in an airplane traveling 30,000 miles. I can't even fathom doing that. Um, So as history will record, though, the attempt would prove to be a failure and would lead to one of the biggest unsolved mysteries of the 20th and 21st century. What happened to Amelia Earhart? So what happened? So along along with her was her navigator, Fred Noonan, and they had made it about 22,000 miles when they took off from Ley, New Guinea on June 29th, 1937. And they were headed toward Howland Island in Earhart's Lockheed 10E Electra airplane. The pair were scheduled to arrive there on July 2nd. However, they would never arrive. The last known transmission from Earhart came around 8.43 a.m., where she stated, We're on the line, 157-337. We will repeat the message. We will repeat this on 62 kilocycles. Wait. There was also another transmission on frequency 3105 uh, kilocycles that was listed as questionable, um, where she was heard saying, we're running on line north and south. And what this means is that they were flying on the northwest to southeast navigational line that bisected Howland Island. Now, if you if you were to look at Howland Island, that thing is a sliver. It's very easy to miss this island, mm-hmm. even for somebody as experienced as Earhart. Now, stationed at Howland Island is the Itasca which was a U.S. Coast Guard cutter. Oh. Um, they were the ones receiving the transmissions from Earhart. Now, while this was the last confirmed transmission from Earhart, the Atiska continued to receive over 121 messages for the next 10 days. 57, of, the, 57 of those could have been from Earhart's plane. The plane's radio was intended for communication like within a few hundred miles, and many stations could hear a background carrier wave. And a carrier wave in telecommunications, a carrier wave, it's a waveform that is modulated with an information bearing signal for the purpose (laughs) of conveying information. And hearing this wave indicated that someone somewhere was transmitting on Earhart's frequency. At times, her voice was even heard, but it was unintelligible. Yeah. And and it and the thing is, like when they were sending out signals, they could you could turn the radio on and off like a Morse code. And there was many times where they said, "If this is Earhart, give us four dashes." And then they got four dashes. Oh, so yeah. Now over the decades, there's been many theories about what happened to her and Noonan. Some say they landed in Saipan and were captured by the Japanese. Some think they crashed in the Marshall Islands, and some believe they just simply crashed into the sea. The plane could have theoretically stayed afloat for a while before sinking. However, we are going to be discussing one theory in particular today that may have gained some new traction recently. Uh Uh-oh. Was it aliens? Sadly, no. (laughs) Not that it's been discovered anyway. I watched that Voyager episode too. You remember that episode where Jane Wayne finds Amelia Earhart in a cave with a bunch of other people <laughs> on like an alien planet? It was like, what? So, uh, is it possible that the two actually made an emergency <laughs> landing on Gardner Island? 
Gardner Island is not too far away from Howland. It's in that vicinity, but still a fairly good distance. If you go over what's been discovered over the last few years, it may just be possible that the mystery is on the verge of being solved. So allow me to introduce the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or in short, TIGAR. I should mm. be like, Ti I just kept, every time I'd read it, I'd just be like, TIGAR. It's tight like TIGAR. Rawr. <laughs> Rawr. So TIGAR is a non a nonprofit organization that was founded in 1985 by Richard Gillespie. 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 Excuse me. Uh, Gillespie is a former army officer, a pilot with a commercial certificate with instrument and multi-engine ratings. I don't know what that means. And was an aviation <laughs> accident investigator and risk manager for the aviation insurance industry. This is all on their website. And I'll have the all the links in the uh, episode description. Uh, but basically, in a nutshell, they looked into aviation. They look into aviation mysteries like Earhart's. And for some time, they've been exploring the possibility that Earhart's plane landed on Gardner Island when they were unable to find Howland. Mm -hmm. So Tigar in 2018, what they did first is they started analyzing the direction bearings on six of the 57 transmissions that may have come from Earhart. And guess what? Five of the seven directional bearings cross in the immediate vicinity of Gardner Island. They do. Oh. Yeah. And not only this, but the quality of the receptions, they would decrease the further away it got from Gardner Island. The station's closest tended to actually even be able to hear unintelligible voices, while stations much further away only picked up the carrier wave. So as they discovered, as they you got closer to Gardner Island, the signals got stronger. So what what's what was at the time on Gardner Island? Was it inhabited or no, it was actually completely uninhabited. It wouldn't be until 1938, a year later. Uh, um, it was a it was a, a British colony. Uh, let's see, coconut palms remain the attempts to operate a plantation on the island from 1893 to 1894, and then later in 1938 to uh, 1963. So, yeah, I have a lot of notes. I would have yeah. figured, like at some point, somebody would gone. Hey, what's this crash plane doing here? Oh yeah, well we'll get to that too. Oh, um, so, so as I was saying though, you know, the closer you got to Gardner Island, the signals got stronger. But as we now know, that wasn't always the case. Going back to young fifteen-year-old Betty sitting in her living room and suddenly picking up a plea for help from Amelia Earhart. Mm -hmm. See, see. So the way it works is the plane's microphone was keyed uh, to the transmitter, and the transmitter could could also put out what was called harmonic frequencies, um, which tend to bounce off the ionosphere and can carry incredible distances, such to Florida. Science, science. Yeah, <laughs> but it wasn't just Betty. It was on July on July second. Mabel Larimore in, in Amarillo, Texas, heard Earhart say, plane down on uncharted island, small, uninhabited. The plane was partially on land, part in water. She oh. gave the latitude and longitude of her location, and Mabel listened for 30 to 45 minutes. She, You just notice I said she wrote down or she, that Earhart gave the latitude and longitude, oh. and Mabel yeah. wrote this down, and then she lost it. No oh, fucking way. way. 
Like, how do you lose that? When you're like, you're, it's like one of the biggest mysteries. And you're like, oops, I guess I misplaced it. Guess it'll stay a mystery. I, I know. July 3rd, Nina Paxton in Ashland, Kentucky, heard Earhart say, K-H-A-Q-Q, calling, down in ocean, then on or near Little Island at a point near something. Then something about directly northeast and our plane about out of gas. Water all around. Very dark. On the 4th of July, Dana Randall in Rock Springs, Wyoming, heard, this is Amelia Earhart. Ship is on a reef south of the equator. Station KH9QQ. The woman then began to give her location, but the signal faded out before it was given. This sequence was repeated an unknown number of times during a 25-minute period. July 7th, Thelma Lovelace in St. John's, New Brunswick. Here's, can you read me? Can you read me? This is Amelia Earhart. This is Amelia Earhart. Please come in. We've taken in water. My navigator is badly hurt. We are in need of medical care and must have help. We can't hold on much longer. All these people are getting transmissions from Amelia Earhart. People who don't know each other. And yet... And no air traffic controllers or whatever the equivalent was at the time. We're hearing any of this. No. No. On frequencies, were... I would suppose were established for that purpose. I have all the logs right here of every transmission they believe they received. Wow. I mean, I mean, like the Istica law was logging um, at times, like you know, unreadable voices. Uh, the HMS Achilles hears dashes in response to Istica's request for dashes on frequency 3105. That was her frequency. Uh, New Zealand Star also hears dashes. A lot of dashes. That's July 2nd. And it went on and on and on. Uh, Coast Guard Hawaii hears long dashes on oh. 3105. So they are picking up, people are picking up like the dashes, the carrier wave. But it seems like just regular citizens who yeah. don't have a clue. With, they don't even know what's going on are just finding out and hearing about this. And it's like, like what? Amelia Earhart. So another interesting aspect of their analysis was discovering that these transmissions weren't random. So between July 2nd and July 7th, all but true transmissions were heard during hours of darkness. So they were always at night. High-frequency radio waves propagate best at night, according to experts. Also, the radio relied on the aircraft's batteries, which was also needed to start the generator engine, which recharged the batteries. So if they ran down the batteries, sending distress calls, then the engine wouldn't start. So they would need to only send signals when the engine was running and charging the batteries. Plus, they would have had to contend with the tide. This is interesting. Uh, the water level would have to be low enough for the propeller, or for the propeller tip to clear. Yeah. Remember, and remember, in some of the transmissions, Earhart talked about being half in water, mm -hmm. and talked about being on a reef. When looking at tidal levels at reef height data, excuse me, when looking at tidal levels and reef height data collected in a survey done in 2007 by an expedition team they were able to plot the credible post-loss signals against the hour-by-hour -hour water levels in the area on the reef 
that Tigar had identified as the plane's probable location. And guess what they discovered? A correlation between low tide and the radio signals. Ah. So every time, so every time the tide was low, that's when they were getting radio transmissions. Makes sense. Yeah. But sadly, this is where that part of the investigation ends because no transmissions would be received after July 7th. Now, going back to what you said about the plane, it's like, oh, well, here's a crashed plane. It's believed that at some point afterwards that the plane was washed over the reef edge into the ocean where it sank. Uh, That makes sense. Which sucks, too, because if this is true, then this would explain why three U.S. Navy search planes from the USS Colorado saw no plane when they would eventually fly over Gardner Island July 9th. Oh, my God. So it's, yeah. It's like if it was right there, they had just been a few days quicker Mm -hmm. and flew over there, they would have seen it and be like, there she is, we found her. But no, it's believed that that's what happened. So as I said, that was the end of that side of the investigation. But it goes further. Because, of course, there's the bones. Oh. In 1940, Gerald Gallagher who was a colonial administrator, found 13 bones buried near the remains of a campfire on Gardner Island. Oh, geez. The bones consisted of a skull, a humeri, a humeri, and a radi. I need Katie here. <laughs> uh, which are arm bones, and a tibia, a fibula, and two femurs. He also found shoes belonging to a man, and a woman, and a box that held a sextant, which is a navigational device. So, they shipped the bones to Fiji. I don't know why Fiji exactly, but they said shipped them to Fiji, where they were examined by a Dr. D.W. Hoodless, where he determined they were from a stocky European male who was around five foot, five inches. And then he seemed to just get rid of the bones. (laughs) He's like, Threw the bones in the trash. Like, you don't know. He's like, (laughs) this isn't them trash. (laughs) It's like, not her. Out you go. Case closed, right? How tall was the guy with her? What was his name? Noonan or whatever? Yeah, he was taller than five foot five as Uh, well. She was also taller than five. She was five eight, I think. But hold on a second, though. Hold it. Not, Not so fast. Now entering the story is Richard Jantz a professor of emeritus of anthropology and director emeritus of the University of Tennessee's Forensic Anthropology Center. That sounds fancy. I know, right? Taking Hulis's measurements and using Forsic, which is a computer program for estimating sex, ancestry, and stature from skeletal measurements, they determined that the bones had more similarity to Earhart than to 99% of individuals in the reference sample, and that the bones were not that of a five foot five male, but were that of a female, obviously Amelia's height. So 99% right there. A Fiji doctor guy really dropped the ball. Right? And then got rid of the damn bones. It's like, now we can't do DNA testing? Nothing of that shit. It's like, thanks a lot, hoodless. So, you know... We go from a short, stocky dude to this is almost certainly Amelia Earhart. So now we have radio directional bearings pointing to this island and quite possibly the body of Amelia Earhart herself. So what about the plane? What about the plane? Well, I'm glad you asked. Have you guys heard? They think they may have found the plane. 
It's... Yeah. Yeah. Tony Romeo. Romeo, Romeo. We have to help you, Romeo. <laughs> right here. C- with the C- I know, right? He's a CEO. He's the CEO of Deep Sea Vision. He believes he may have found the la- he may have found at last the plane that belonged to Earhart. It's uh, and he believes he found it about a hundred miles off the coast of Howland. He and his team spent three months combing around thirteen thousand square kilometers of the ocean floor. It's here that they found something similar in size and shape of the plane resting at around sixteen thousand feet. And just for reference, the Titanic sits at 12,500 feet. <gasps> really? So this, is, so this thing is deep. Yes, I say. But the lucky side of that is it may be very well preserved because of the depth. Now, I couldn't find anywhere that gave an exact location, which I think is probably by design. He probably doesn't want someone else like, trying to go out there and finding it first. So, yeah, I couldn't find any articles that just specifically said, you know, it's we believe it's right here at this location. But this is still a developing story. So as it uh, develops further, we'll update you, listeners. Yeah. But we can't find it on Google Maps yet, is what you're saying. Exactly. But in the end, whether at long last the mystery is solved or not, it won't change the fact that two lives were lost while attempting to achieve something never done before. If anything... Earhart should be remembered not for the mystery surrounding her disappearance, but the barriers she knocked down and the heights that she soared to, both literally and figuratively. I mean, she she met the, you know, like she hung out with Eleanor Roosevelt, this little girl from Kansas. You know, hey, you know what Eleanor me? Roosevelt didn't do? She didn't fly coast to coast. No, she didn't. Mm-hmm. And she didn't fly transatlantic, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I hate it, too, because they were so close. Like they like I said, yeah. they'd already done. They were only like, was that they said thirty thousand miles and they made it, yeah twenty twenty two. So they only had about eight thousand yeah. miles left. And the problem was, it's just these islands are so damn tiny. I mean, like like look at a map sometime and just look at how Lanai. It's just a sliver. And there were other things that were that went wrong that morning too. For instance, well, actually, the minute she took off, the winds were working against her, and so that created drag, which is going to use more fuel. Also, they discovered soon after takeoff that while they could receive her, she couldn't seem to hear them. There was many times oh. where they would they would radio her during her flight and she wouldn't respond, kind of indicating that she, for whatever reason, couldn't hear them. And so it just, it just it's, it's unfortunate. And I do like the idea that at last they might be able to finally figure out exactly what happened or close enough. Yeah. Because like you find, if you find that plane... That will be almost conclusive as to what happened. So, anyway, what are your thoughts on it? I'm pretty convinced from what you've given me. I, I don't know the <laughs> ultimate, the alternate uh, <clears throat> stories, but I mean, this sounds kind of almost open and shut. It's it compelling does. for sure. It is. It is very compelling. But if you go down some of the other avenues, they may sound just as compelling. Like I said, one of the theories was that she was captured by the Japanese. And there's even supposedly a photograph that people claim is Amelia sitting there on the end of the dock and Noonan is standing there next to her. Like I said, though, if they find the plane, that will definitely make things a lot more conclusive. Um, and I'm really hoping that when they get out there that it is her plane. 
um, I'm really excited uh, at the at the idea of, of a a mystery that's 90 years old at long mm -hmm. last actually being solved. So anyway, well, if you liked this episode, uh, please like, share it. Um, if you have any questions about this episode or if you have anything you would like to share with us and maybe have us uh, share it over on the show, you can email us at littlepodcasthorrors at gmail.com. And of course, you can check out our website, www.littlepodcastofhorrors.com. Or hey, you want to maybe talk to us directly? Not just have to rely on email. $2 a month. Discord access, baby. Patreon. Yeah. Like it's on our website. Yep. It's all on our website. Come join the cool kids. We're awesome. <laughs> yeah. And uh, with that, uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Toodaloo.